Stories of Being is a series of conversations with a range of inspiring humans whose approaches to life each offer an important piece of the puzzle for how we go about creating the fairer, more balanced, connected and beautiful world we long for. Each conversation explores a new perspective on how we view success, connection, power and progress and offers inspiration and guidance as we collectively transition to more harmonious ways of being with ourselves, each other, and our shared home. In today's episode, I talk with Nim Desfort. Nim is a woman who works on a variety of amazing projects and wears many different hats, but what she identifies with first and foremost is being a human. She has a passion for exploring and understanding and living the full spectrum of the human experience um, and is a a deeply passionate uh, advocate for connection. She's also a entrepreneur turned social entrepreneur, writer, speaker, advisor, storyteller and explorer of connection. In this episode, we chat all things connection and how it can um, help solve some of the problems we face, co-generational relationships and the the lost um, relationship of elders within our society, death and what living well and dying well means and so much more. Nim is one of those people that you just instantly feel at home with, I guess you could say. Um, And I loved this conversation its humanness I guess. Nim has an amazing bunch of projects going on at the moment including um, her reconnect cards plus a whole bunch of other things so check out the show notes because I've linked um, to her website the reconnect cards the human atlas project which she also works on which is an exclusive newsletter um, where she presses the courage button as she says and uh, puts her writing out there. So please enjoy. She's awesome. She's lovely. Um, And as always, hopefully you get something out of this. So you're, you're someone who works on a variety of different projects and could kind of define yourself by many different titles for lack of a better, better term. But why is being a human and and the, the title of human, the most important thing for you? Well, um, I feel like I've always been a lifelong explorer of the human condition. And from a very early age, I was just a very curious observer of humans. Um, you know, I, I was a child of the 80s in the pre-doom scrolling ages. And I grew up in a very small community in far north Queensland. And so the power of community was abundant. And so my curiosity, um, I guess started very early and I was really captivated by how humans connect, collaborate and communicate. And um, the title of human is so important to me because we all are the same on the inside. And, you know, who are you outside of these self-imposed titles? Um, And this is a question that I've really had to learn the hard way, you know, during some of the greatest I guess, ego shedding moments of my professional life. Um, uh, I believe that our identities are always evolving, but I identify with human because it feels truthful and long lasting. And, you know, it's, it's a title that not only connects to me personally, but also really professionally, 
because all of my work pursuits have this human connection thread through them. Amazing. And you kind of touched on a couple of things there, like the ego shedding and growing up in this place um, where there was a really strong sense of community. Are those some of the things and what other things kind of that have happened up until this point, what are the memorable moments or experiences do you think that kind of led you to this place of of being human first and, and letting go of kind of everything else in terms of title and achievement and all of those sorts of things? Well, it's been quite the journey and it's definitely a lifelong sport. But when you asked me that question, I first thought of, um, you know, the camera because I did a degree in photography and, you know, I'm one of these people that does a degree and then never uses it. <laughs> um, but the my camera was kind of my original wand for human connection and it was in these moments when I was a photographer that I was able to witness my own gifts of being able to connect with the human behind the lens. And like, it came very naturally to me and, you know, no one likes getting their picture taken. I don't like getting my picture taken, but I had this um, ability to make this human or humans um, feel safe and seen and relaxed and open. And, um, you know, I think that that, that experience as a photographer, you know, it, it was my original wand for human connection. And, um, you know, now I just take photos for loved ones and for the love of it and to be a non-influential Instagrammer. <laughs> <laughs> Rare these days. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the other reflection is, is that like I, you know, I thrive in conditions of diversity and differences and, you know, travel has always been such a main vein for my hyper curiosity. But, um, you know, I, you know, I, I love being the black sheep, so to speak. Um, and, you know, I like being surrounded by people and cultures and experiences that don't feel familiar. Um, and I also love being that bridge of diversity and differences and gathering people of diversity and differences together. And is that something that kind of, I or that feeling of liking being the black sheep and that bridge, is that something you always, on reflection, always felt and enjoyed? Or is that something that's kind of unraveled over over time? No, I think it's been such an integral part of um, my kind of psychological makeup um, in terms of like my infectious curiosity, um, my kind of investigator mindset. Um, you know, I think one of the, the greatest lessons um, that I've learned and continue to learn is like, you know, I've always had like endless time and empathy and patience for our elders. And when I say elders, it's, you know, it's basically anyone over 50 years old or self-identifies as a modern elder. Um, and so I've spent a lot of my life um, actually surrounded by people of different ages, both younger and elder. But um, some of the most profound experiences in my life and my greatest lessons has actually been gifted through this kind of age diversity theme 
that has been so integral to my upbringing um, and also my professional and personal life. Yeah, so so on that, kind of co-generational connection is something I guess you're quite aligned with and you you really see the power in that. And I, I, I feel like that first happened for you in a corporate workspace. Is that correct? Where you started sort of seeing the power of this this co-generational generational connection. Did that first happen in like a corporate setting? And as a society, do you think that we're really lacking this kind of, yeah, diversity across across generations and age? Because it's not something we talk about diversity a lot you know, in this day and age, which is amazing. But the age diversity isn't something that's necessarily spoken about. Oh, I could talk to you about this for the next hour, <laughs> but um, I'll keep it brief. So the first part I'll start with is just my personal story and how that influenced my really strong beliefs around this area. And then I'll talk more about why it's so important. So, um Yes, like, uh, you know, one of my core life philosophies is this concept called win-win relationships. And it's really about no matter our age, we all have something to teach and learn from each other. And um, just for me personally, like when I was 30, I was the youngest direct report to a 70-year-old CEO and his name was Mike Dolan. And together we created, a, a you know, an entrepreneurship program that you know operated across 20 countries and six and a half thousand employees um and you know it was an it was a phenomenal project that was you know written about by global press and very celebrated but fundamentally together we were such a dream co-generational team and it was a chapter that really really cemented the power and the passion I have for this intergenerational collaboration and, you know, Mike was a very experienced CEO and he came with just infectious curiosity and wisdom and combined with my kind of dynamic, like my dynamic energy and um, curiosity for innovation and doing things differently. You know, we were so disruptive in our approach. And I think that this out of all of my professional experiences, um, you know, I was living in real time what I believed, which was this notion of these win-win relationships. And why I think this is so important is because, you know, we are living in the most age diverse time in human history and we really need to make the most of this multi-generational moment. And fuck all you generational shaming, blaming and stereotyping because fundamentally we are all the same no matter what our age is. We all have something to teach and learn from each other. And I really believe that our current world can learn a lot from what Native and Indigenous cultures do when it comes to respecting elders and celebrating elder wisdom and intergenerational wisdom sharing. And, you know, I've taught workshops across the world on intergenerational wisdom sharing because there is a lack of transmission of sharing our stories and our lived life experiences across the ages. Um, secondly, we are living in the most age-segregated societies and cultures of our time. And ageism 
is not new news. And no matter what age you are, whether you're 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, what, you know, everyone will experience ageism at some point in their life. And so, you know, this is, uh, I'm very, obviously you can hear it in my voice. I'm, I'm really passionate about um, elevating and celebrating intergenerational wisdom sharing. And I think that there is such power in our stories. And I feel that our stories are our greatest passport to connection. And that's where a lot of my work focus is, is around um, stories um, as connection. And I guess like, why is this important? Well, you know, our relational health is the number one important factor when it comes to longevity. You know, everyone talks about mental health, but they never talk about actually the benefit of social connections in that mental health kind of arena. You know, we get higher quality of life, a greater sense of belonging from our social interactions and our social connections. I really want to come back to that, but just quickly while we're on the um, the, the elders and, and kind of this ageism, I guess, that we currently are seeing, mm-hmm. why do you think that's happening? Like the thing that kind of pops into my mind is we live in a world where it's all about like, generalization but it's all about kind of growth and productivity so in my head I was thinking is it because as people get older they're not seen as productive or they don't have the same output say as a younger person yeah why do you think that there's this kind of almost lack of respect or um yeah loss of importance with age and why there's that gap so a couple of things that come to my mind when you ask that question And, you know, these may not be scientifically proven, but these are certainly um, my beliefs around why this is happening. Um, The first is, is that we live in a very um, individualistic culture. And, um, you know, if, if the listeners have ever read this book by David Brooks called The Second Mountain, you know, he really, um, I love David Brooks. He's a New York Times columnist and, everything he writes just speaks to my heart and soul. But, you know, he talks about this, you know, how this individualistic culture is driving us to focus more on self than others. Um, I think um, historically younger age has always been celebrated, but there is a very exciting wave that's happening at the moment. And that is where, you know, age diversity and all ages are celebrated more and you know we see this in the media all the time I obviously see it because I follow it but for example recently the Philippines young uh, oldest woman was featured on the cover of Vogue beautiful captivating very you know just such an image with such emotions um the you know the detail in her skin the stories in her eyes. Um, So, you know, it is entering mainstream media. um, And you see this also, you know, in Hollywood, right, where there's all ages that are being celebrated for doing things that maybe were once only celebrated by younger generations. Um, And I think the media actually plays a critical role because, you know, we 
are so influenced by the media and there is a lot of kind of generational shaming and blaming which I mentioned before and so you know we have these stereotypes and these narratives that are constantly being driven like oh the millennials the me 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 generation the spoiled generation oh the boomer okay boomer you know like it's these types of narratives are they're stereotyping millions of people by you know, one kind of perception. Um, And the last thing I'll say, which I find is really important, is that the way we gather in communities has radically changed. And so traditionally we would gather at places like church and, um, you know, a lot of these historical gathering places in community, Rotary, um, RSL clubs, churches, community halls, neighbourhood centres, all of these places are no longer attracting new generations and it's a sign of the age segregation that's happening in our community. And obviously there is a lot of technological influences on this, you know, screen time and how many people are addicted to screens and, you know, we're living in the most hyper-connected society of our time but we are fundamentally the loneliness generation and people that has ever existed you know everyone is longing for belonging um and I guess no matter what age you are it's very common for people to surround themselves by people that feel familiar and so you know if you're in your 30 somethings you're hanging around other 30 somethings if you're in your 60-somethings, you're hanging around other 60-somethings. So there is not a lot of moments in our communities that enable us to really cross-generationally pollinate. Yeah, we're not just in community. It's that really um, carved-out time to be social rather just than just being with everyone. And like you said, that's where we get a variety of different different people that we're exposed to. Yeah, it's, you know, the social tapestry of our communities is so, ch- it's it's radically changed. And, you know, I think that there's a real post-pandemic shift towards the value of social connections, um, but there isn't a lot of opportunities for people to actually experience that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think when it comes to age diversity, unless you're in a workplace where you automatically get different ages, um, you know, there isn't a lot of actual opportunities for people to access that multi-generational moment. You know, one of the reasons why I have always volunteered is because it gives me exposure to all ages. You know, when I was um, a surf lifesaver volunteering on the beach, you know, my surf lifesaving team was ages 18 to 65. Mm-hmm. You know, they're real multi-generational moments um, through volunteering. Um, The other thing that I find interesting that's happening in the US and we'll see happening more in Australia soon is this multi-generational living. And because of the housing crisis and the barriers to entry for some of the younger generations, there is a huge, huge wave of innovation happening in the US at the moment around multi-generational living. And, you know, I read these stories of these win-win relationships where, like, there's this 20-something-year-old living with this 70-something-year-old and, you know, there's a win-win from it because the 70-something-year-old is getting so much, um, I guess, 
social exposure and um, curiosity ignited through the younger and the younger is getting, you know, reduced or lower cost rent um, and also just the ongoing wisdom that the 70 something year old offers. Yes. And, and, and that um, connection between generations also creates or has the potential to create less division because it's it's understanding and connection on a human level. So there's not this divide between, I will use the environment as an example, like we always say, or, the, you know, the common theme can sometimes be the boomers don't care, it's up to our generation yeah. to fix it and all of these things. So there's almost this divide potentially because there's actually there's not conversations between the two groups and relationships between the two where they can actually discuss it and understand where each is coming from and that's obviously across a variety of different topics but it's that lack of yeah relationship that yeah can sometimes create those sorts of sorts of divides a hundred percent yeah I think um when I listen to you speak on this, it reminds me of this quote that I heard Kristen Tippett say the other day from the On, Be- On Being con- podcast, which is like one of my favourite podcasts. Um, and I think that what you're saying is like one of our greatest opportunities. And that is like when it comes to the greatest challenges of our time, like climate change, you know, there is no way that we can work against each other as generations. Like we, it needs to be a collaborative approach. Um, and, you know, I live and breathe this every day. Like one of my companies, um, Tomorrow's Air, is, you know, it's in the climate space. And I co-founded it with a, a woman in San Francisco, Christina Beckman, and she is from a completely different age group than me. You know, so there is um, such opportunity, but we just have, I don't know, I think, I feel like so many of us have so many walls up in place when it comes to um, collaborating with different generations. Um, and, you know, if anyone hasn't experienced having a great mentor or a gr- being a mentee or, you know, those types of dynamics, it they can actually be win-win moments and opportunities, but it does take two people or two sides to lay down that armour um, and a lot of the time that armour is just, you know, media and cultural conditioning and be open to the possibilities that exist. And, like, I am a living, proving case point of what happens when you lay down your armour um, to open up more co-generational collaborations, conversations and partnerships in your life um, because I live and breathe it every day and it's like the most rewarding, one of the most rewarding things about my existence is, you know, the different generations that I work with and partner with and even personally, you know, I have a personal board of directors that are over 50 and, I swear to God, like no Instagram quote can give me the wisdom and life advice that I need. I go to, you know, my personal board of directors and their lived life experiences and their ability to share story and wisdom with me, that is so much more powerful than any freaking Instagram quote card could ever give me. Amazing. So those those personal board of directors, are they almost like your elders? 
yeah they are they are my um yeah my modern my modern elders um yeah that's a term that um chip conley um he's a american author and strategic advisor to the airbnb founders and a hospitality entrepreneur and so he um, founded this place in Mexico called the Modern Elder Academy. It's a midlife wisdom school. And um, I have spent, I've spent many months over there working alongside the team, teaching as guest faculty. And the intergenerational piece plays a very important role in their curriculum. And, you know, Chip has been, you know, he's been an, he continues to be an incredible mentor to me. Um, but he's also, you know, he's very tuned in to what's happening when it comes to aging and longevity conversations. And, you know, it's scientifically proven that if you have more, you know, age diversity in your life, it will help with when it comes to your quality of life and your longevity. Yeah. And I think as well by having those relationships and including or, or society embracing the aging and the elder, the, de- the the decisions we would make for society as a whole and for the environment and all of those things would be completely different because we're taking that community and that group of people, what's the word, quality of life, but also their um, uh, thoughts and, and advice um, into account, if that makes sense. It's kind of that, I think it's the seventh, seven generation principle of, you know, how does this affect seven generations before and after? So so the elders within our community actually having a fundamental say changes then what decisions we make on a on a bigger scale and level. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, um I just want to comment like advice is a hard word because um I feel that language really matters when we talk about these types of thing. And, you know, wisdom is a word that's really important to me. And wisdom, you don't have to be over 50 to have wisdom. You know, all ages can have wisdom. But where I feel like it, you know, it really comes to life for me personally is not through their advice, so to speak, but through their lived life experiences and giving them the permission um, through powerful questions to hold the space to listen. And I think fundamentally, no matter what age you are, we've really forgotten this lost art of listening. And, you know, so it's, you know, no matter if you're the elder or you're the younger or you're the in-between, whatever, um, you know, it comes down to some really kind of fundamentally human things that we need to remind ourselves first before we go into these conversations or collaborations or partnerships. Um, but what I do see in my in my work and in my personal life is, especially with the modern elders, is, you know, they are at a stage of their life where they have they have more time, they have generosity, they have lived life experience, they have wisdom. They are fully equipped to be extremely generous to future generations. Um, and if the youngers had more time, more ability to listen and more curiosity, you know, there could be potential magic that happens there. I call it intergenerational magic. Um, but I guess, yeah, I think it starts with being open, open to 
finding, you know, new conversations and new partnerships. And, you know, practically in my day-to-day, I do this every day. You know, yesterday I bumped into a maybe 50, 60-something-year-old woman outside my apartment block. I've sparked up a conversation with her. You know, my AirPods weren't in. I wasn't on my mission listening to my podcast. Like, we are just so disconnected from you know, being curious to connect with other ages. But there is so much beauty and joy that unfolds when you open up those portals of curiosity. It's initially making a conscious effort to connect because we just, it's not necessarily how we live anymore because we can always be listening to something on our phone, whatever it is. So that's that's the habit and the learned behaviour. It's, it's almost changing just, yeah, the kind of the way we behave and I think the thing you're working on the reconnect cards is a really nice way to kind of shift that thinking so I'd love for you to kind of chat to that and talk about your journey with with launching these cards and yeah how they can kind of bring us back to feeling more connected to each other well Ingrid if you ever want to develop a product, know that it's a long burn project. Yeah. Um, after working in like more service-based businesses my entire life, this is my first product and it's definitely been a long burn. Um, but Reconnect um, was uh, conversation cards for deeper connections and it was born in the thick of COVID with um, a friend of mine, Nick, you know, we grew up together in Port Douglas and we really witnessed growing up the power of community and connection. But during the thick of COVID, we saw how, you know, there was just this overwhelming longing for belonging. And, you know, we've fundamentally forgotten how to connect with each other as humans. And, you know, I think with reconnect um it's actually really simple it comes down to if you give people the permission to listen and create the right permission slip it's essentially a permission slip to share stories and listen and um you know you can have deeper conversations through something as simple as powerful questions and the permission slip to listen and you know we have been testing the product all around the world and I am a human that feels things deeply and it has been absolutely profound to witness how something so simple as, you know, conversation cards can have such a profound impact on people, um, you know, when they're paired off and using Reconnect. Um, you know, it's it's a reminder of humanity, essentially. And... Um, yeah, I guess where um, we can play it with friends, we can play it with strangers. And it's a very simple and accessible tool. You know, a lot of the time we don't have, we don't have time. We don't have space. Life is busy. There's 4,000 notifications and 20,000 emails waiting for me. And I'm dealing with three hungry mouths, you know, like whatever that is for you individually. Um but it can be something so simple yet so powerful. Um, and so, yeah, we're launching Reconnect this year. It's been a wild ride and I'm currently working with the second uh, manufacturer 
Um, and, you know, I really believe in its power and potential and we're going to continue doing these reconnect um, workshops in community because uh, fundamentally, you know, when you're building a business, um, you know, I come, my background is in social impact and innovation. And so, you know, we're not just wanting to create a mass produced product here. We're actually wanting to try change and massage that social, social tapestry of our communities. And so the, the workshops that we do with this, with this game is also as equally important because it gives us an opportunity to regather in community in unique ways that are different from how we're currently gathering, which is very different. Um, yeah. So what, watch this space basically is what I'm saying on reconnect and yeah, it's a, it's what the world needs right now. You sort of touched on it, but it's, seemingly simple it's listening to people but that is so powerful and and something that doesn't necessarily happen and I think something like those cards or what those cards can also do is people don't I'm very guilty of this and I'm trying to be better at it but people just want to be heard they don't want to be told you know have their problems fixed or you know told what to do or anything they just want to be heard and seen and these cards feel like they can also aid in that. It's just people being almost witnessed and stories being shared and, yeah, there's real there's real power in that. And, yeah, like you said, it, it doesn't happen necessarily naturally day to day. Yeah, and it's usually because of these, right? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I've always been on a grand search for stories and you know I think I mentioned before but they're like the connective tissue that makes up this beautiful tapestry of what it means to be human and you know previously like I've been working as a life historian um, for many years and as a life historian my role was I was capturing and collecting life stories of over 50s for future generations to to treasure and, you know, I'm a storyteller, I'm a story hunter, I'm a story keeper, I'm all of these things. But fundamentally, it's because I love to listen. I love to hold space and I love to make humans feel seen and heard. And it doesn't feel hard to me. It feels very natural. And it is the greatest gift that I can give other humans in my lifetime. And so, you know, my work as a life historian really ignited this radical mission that I'm on to help humans connect. And that can be connecting through with themselves, um, through, you know, reflective practices, um, through nature, through community, whatever that means, and each other. Um, you know, as you can see, I like totally nerd out on all things, you know, relational health, social connection, modern elder wisdom, um, narrative psychology, but really it's about the power of sharing those stories. And, um, yeah, reconnect is just a tool to help do that because when I was working as a life story and it was a one-to-one -one service and so it was very intimate, but it also, um, you know, the impact was restricted to the, the loved ones of the individual only. And so I was looking for a tool that could make this, type of feelings and work possible to the wider community and society 
and that's why reconnect was born and i love that they can be used across a variety of different relationships like a couple a family friends strangers so it's sort of they sort of as well break the ice in a way and just make those conversations accessible because you cards and and you know so it makes it that connection yeah possible and accessible it's a hundred and it's you know it's I'm not going on shark tank to say that this is like the most innovative product out because you know there is some really great competitors that already exist you know Esther Perel's card game that she launched during um COVID the we are not really strangers card game there are conversational card games out there but what I feel like that makes reconnect so different and what we're really committed to is actually the social impact piece. And so we are building this business to help commit a percentage of all card games, all card decks sold to these workshops that are actually making an impact in our community. And so, you know, both Nick and I come from a social impact and innovation background. And so we're creating not only a business here, we are actually creating something that fundamentally is going to have an impact on that social tapestry that exists in our community. And that's most important to us. It's not about selling millions of decks. It's actually about the impact that it can have um, on a fundamental human level within our communities. And I think you you just said then, like, you know, you're not going to go on Shark Tank because it's you're- it's not this hugely innovative thing, but I actually think the simplicity is actually so powerful and it's actually what we need. There's all of these like crazy technological innovations and, yes, of course, they're helpful and we need some of them, but I think we also forget that there is so much power in in this sort of uh, simple, it's not simple, but more paired back solution And that that is actually what will change the world. You know, if we start relating to each other as humans, not race, not political party, not age, none, you know, any of these things, there is so, so, so much power in that. And from that, the world changes. If we relate to each other as humans, the world is a completely different place. 100% agree with you, Ingrid. And like, you know, some of the most simple things in life are simply the most powerful. And sometimes as humans, it takes bad things that happen to us for to make us realise that. Um, and you're exactly right. Like, I feel like, you know, we could create the school of how to be human and it would be the most popular school the most popular school because we've fundamentally forgotten how to be how to be human with each other and you know there is you know we're not going to go into the the darkness but you know we're living in the most disconnected moments of history right now and you know I've really found such great light um, in these cross-generational friendships and relationships and you know, they've always been at the heart of my conversations because I feel like it's a key aspect of what it means to be human and how we want to live and who we want to be to each other. And that's why, you know, it's 
you know, it's really important for me, like, you know, how might we live, we live better and together um, in our communities? I mean, like my friends laugh, you know, I've got more 50 plus year old friends than any 30 something, you know, and I'm proud of it. I'm extremely proud of it. And it's, yeah, I'm always, yeah, I'm always going to be advocating for the power of our lived life experiences as a passport to connection. Yeah. And kind of on that, you mentioned before that storytelling is hugely important and powerful in in kind of regaining that connection. Um, and one of your projects is the Human Atlas Project. Um, yeah. So how do you kind of view that and and how how why do you see that as this like really powerful important piece of this whole kind of puzzle well you know that question that sometimes people ask like what would you do if you were not afraid (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's a good question well (laughs) if you ask yourself that 10 times every day during a sabbatical when you're having a career crisis (laughs) Then you birth a project that is what you would do if you were not afraid. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the Human Atlas is uh, a private newsletter and community space that I run. And honestly, I some days I feel afraid of its potential and I just hit the courage button in this rainbow library and I write my little heart out. And for years, I was so nervous about the power of my writing. And I played small um, in so many ways. You know, what I, I just did what I should do in life, like the shoulds. I did all the shoulds. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, I took a sabbatical for um, three months last year. It was my third career break. I'm a huge advocate of a sabbatical sabbatical whatever career break you want to take and um I started to write I started to write publicly for the first time in you know over eight years I'd been writing privately and I guess um yeah the 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 human atlas is really based on a couple of things it's based on what I mentioned before around stories being our greatest passport for connection um it's also based on my like I just nerd out on narrative psychology and um, I know that there's great power in sharing our stories and this is a private space on the internet that's not on social media. You know, I'm obsessed with Substack and its potential as a platform. I invested in Substack last week. I'm so invested in Substack as a safe safe and innovative innovative place for writers. you know, on the human atlas, we ask deep questions, we have honest conversations. And I do this because I seek truth and connection and direction and confirmation of the universal human experience. Mm -hmm. And there is so many peaks and pits of being human. You know, there's these juxtapositions of what it means to be a modern day human. There's life and death. There's joy and suffering. There's the heartbreak and the redemption. There's the love and the loss. And I am just the biggest word nerd. And I I know that we need these stories to heal and to express our truths and to enact this change. And so I have this community of explorers 
and you know the explorers are the the readers and contributors of this human atlas and I don't know it's been a very revealing and still scary journey for me because it's basically you know it wasn't just me hitting my courage button during a soulbatical it's really me um, claiming my dreams you know I have reading has always been my inhale and writing has always been my exhale and when I write it just feels like this delicious exhalation and I just know that honesty connects and you know the human atlas is just my channel for that exhalation as I embark on these self-discovery journeys as well as you know investigating others um so yeah it's it's an amazing project, but, you know, I'm still scared of it because it's a really stretchy um, courage uh, muscle project. Um, yeah. And how do you, I mean, you're doing it, so that's, you know, that's a big thing. But when that sort of fear, I don't know if it pops up or if it's always kind of underlying and in the background, but how do you how do you move past that and, and keep going and not let that override the the doing of it? Yeah, so I think a couple of things. Um, naturally, in a in a private newsletter, you're going to have your you know your number one fans, and um, so you know I have some incredible NIM champions that uh, encourage me to continue writing. Uh, when, you know, it feels very vulnerable and dark and I've got these vulnerability hangovers every time I press send. Um, I think the there's also a higher kind of vision or mission that's drawing me and that is, you know, I've been writing this book for eight years. I know the world needs this book. The only way for the world to see that this book is being kind of created in the oven is by writing continuously. So it's like, it's just, you know, it's kind of like with the courage muscle, it's like working out, right? You just got to keep on having to go to the gym until you get to that level of being, you know, fit. So the courage muscle just needs to keep on going as a consistency thing there. Um, and the last thing I'll say, which I haven't actually ever told anyone, but I have this, um, this folder on my Google drive and it's called the brag bank. And, you know, every single time I've got a LinkedIn recommendation, uh, you know, an Instagram DM, a message from a friend, anything like it's, it's a very random um, bank of screenshots of basically, um, you know, when, People have been, you know, giving me kudos or um, confirming that I'm on the path or, um, you know, celebrating my gifts, reminding me of the value I have to give this world. And so whenever I'm having a really dark Debbie down a day, I go into that brag bank and I just kind of flick through the screenshots and remind myself that, um, you know, there is a higher mission for what I'm doing. and you know, my work and my life is first and foremost a portfolio of service and, 
you know, if I don't feel that in real time, sometimes I need to go seek it out. And the brag bank has been a great way to remind myself in those moments of, you know, vulnerability to keep going and keep writing. I love that. I think that is such an amazing tool, you know, because doubt and fear and uncertainty and just like, oh, what am I doing? <laughs> um, it's natural. Mm. So I don't know why, but I think it's probably, it seems that everyone experiences it. And it sort of comes back to what you were saying earlier about the almost the ebbs and flows of life. Yeah, you'll go through these periods of doubt or uncertainty. So having a tool like that, isn't it? It's an amazing just reminder of the why. Remembering why is so important. We haven't gone there yet, Ingrid, but I'd love to go there. Because, go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the closer that I get to death, the more vivid my life becomes. And, you know, the work that I'm doing at the moment through studying to be a death doula and working with a client who's embarking on their end of life chapter and essentially dying and working very closely with her and her family, you know, there is nothing more potent to kind of help you step more fully into life than in embracing the certainty that is death. Mm. And, you know, my capacity to to live and to love is just being further awakened as I continue to open my heart to death. And it is a very, very powerful elixir when it comes to how do I live more abundantly? How do I live more courageously? Um, you know, when we spoke before about the simple things, like it's, being surrounded by death, working in the death industry, working at end of life and in those hugely human moments, you know, it re fully reminds me of how very few things matter and how much things matter. Mm. And is, is that a common sentiment that you see with the people you work with and help kind of transition through death like is that something that comes up a, a lot or what are some, sort of some of the common themes that you see some of your clients experience during that process well that's a big question because I think that it's very um it's a very individual experience but one thing I will say is that as a culture and society we're in complete denial of death and that's why I was so drawn to do this work and so, you know, most people have an avoidance mentality when it comes to talking about death, thinking about death, doing the death life admin that you need to do before death. Um, you know, we've become so sterilised by the death process. You know, we see it in movies and culture. Um, you know, death is defined as an endpoint. It's, you know, it's isolated. It's lonely. Um you know, we need to do death differently. That's why I'm in the world of death because I believe that we need to do it differently. And also, P.S., like there is a massive age wave coming and we have a growing population and, you know, 
Australia's 65 plus population is going to grow 50% in the next 20 years. Like every single millennial that's listening to this podcast, you know, if you're a millennial, your parents are going to pass in the next 20 years. And so the baby boomers, baby boomers, whatever generational branding you want to give them, actually there is going to be a huge wave of generational change happening in our in our culture and in our societies in the next 20 years. And so if we don't start getting comfortable with death now, you know, we're going to have to face it very awkwardly in the future. So when people are at that end of life chapter or transitioning into that end of life chapter, you know, they have the avoidance or they embrace it. And I think my work as a death doula is really, really important because the the role of the death doula is primarily to provide that psychological and spiritual support for the patient and their loved ones. And, you know, the, it's a non-medical role and, um, you know, it's a role it is such an honourable role. You know, it is, you're a supportive presence and a space holder and a companion and a witness and an organiser. And a lot of people at that stage of life don't have much support. Um, a lot of people want to die differently these days and that is okay and there is a huge amount of incredible innovation happening in the end of life and death space which we could record six podcasts on if we had more time um but what i feel that i i see um when people are at that end stage of life is you know there's one of my favorite books of all time is the five regrets of the dying by bonnie neal and it's fundamental human truths that we forget i wish i didn't work so hard I wish I had the, um, I can't remember them all off the top of my head, but I, you know, I wish I had healed relationships. Um, and I think that these kind of narratives that she's identified through working with her clients are very similar to what we hear nowadays as well. And the quality of our relationships is a very key end of life question, topic, element of review, and that's why, um, you know, it goes back to the point that I was saying earlier around social connection has proved to help us when it comes to longevity and quality of life. Um, yeah, so I guess, um, yeah, on the death side of things, um, it's, a, it's an honour to be in the space and um, I think that it's really needed right now. And I think we have a lot to learn from other cultures as well on how to do death better. Western, the Western way is not great. And um, yeah, for me, it also has that huge, you know, intergenerational element. I've always worked with elders and, you know, it is my greatest life's privilege to not only capture their stories, but also to help them transition through you know, the most important chapter of their life, which is end of life. Yeah. And as as you were just talking, like, and you said, um, like, I was just thinking we're, we're born into the world connected, you know, often a baby's put straight on them. We're born into the world connected. 
we should leave the world connected and and the work that you do as a death doula and and supporting that transition means that these that people and souls can leave connected to themselves to their family to their community if then you know things are done differently and i think that helps the individual who's going through that process but it then also helps the people around them yeah i i feel really comfortable in emotional depth i think i said to you before like i feel things so deeply i'm extremely empath- empathetic and sensitive but you know grief has this way of breaking you wide open and anyone that has experienced death will know that it changes everything. It puts a magnifying glass over your entire life. And, you know, I guess um, it's a stage of many families um, or loved ones and, and patients' lives that is very isolating. It's very scary. It's lonely. It's, there's a lot of unknowns. It can be terrifying. And, um, you know, for for the role of a death doula it's you know we're skilled communicators you know we hear what is not being said and you know we sit in that silence when it is really really thick and you know we're very keen observers and you know we are holistically supporting the individual and their loved ones through a process that is so so bewildering and I guess, um, you know, what a privilege to walk alongside them and to to hold them and to to love them. And, you know, it gives me goosebumps um, just talking about it um, because I feel like, uh, you know, we focus so much on how well we live and how we're going to live longer and, we're going to optimize and productize and but we have no focus on on how well we die and I think that that is a really important you know pondering question for us to ask because it's not something we often think about until someone close to us is going through the dying and end of life process that it very very revealing to us that the current systems and process may not match what we how we want to spend our final days I think that phrase you just said how well we die is it's so beautiful and so powerful Mm. I think that's really yeah it's really quite special that that sentiment so what would you again it's so so different for everyone but with the experiences you've had, how how does that process of death and that experience, how does that look compared to how it is now? What does kind of dying well, generally speaking, what would you say that that looked like or felt like? Yeah, so I guess the first thing I'll say is that we're underprepared and avoidant. And so there is like a a level of planning that needs to go into your end of life plan. And, you know, whatever age you are, this is, you know, I've, I've done my end of life plan and 
I feel very comfortable that knowing, you know, what I want done with my body, what my funeral will be like, you know, we're conditioned to think that our funeral has to be everyone wearing black, standing around crying. I mean, there is some amazing innovation that's happening within the death industry at the moment and funerals do not have to be what you've seen on TV. Um, you know, ritual is going through a revolution when it comes to end of life. And so I guess the, the planning piece is the first piece. And, you know, that could be everything from um, legacy projects, which is like the work I was doing as a life historian, you know, capturing stories before it's too late. Um, there is this very morbid but beautiful quote that I love and it's um, the quote says every time someone dies a library burns Mm. and everyone has that friend that has lost someone and they haven't captured their stories and then they've just got this camera roll of photos which is great but there is nothing more powerful than hearing them tell this and share their stories so I guess um, just to quickly summarise to you, um, the, the planning stage is really important. You know, what do you want your funeral to look like? Um, what, do you, um, ha- what do you want done with your body? Obviously, there's a huge amount of admin when it comes to your possessions, your finances, your dependents, your pets. You know, there's so many important aspects of information and documents. And, you know, because we're so digital these days, I can tell you now, that if you don't have these things and someone passes, it is a real nightmare when it comes to their digital footprint, their logins, their bank account details, their social media logins. Like there is a digital ecosystem that doesn't just die when someone passes. You know, you need to be able to access all of those things. And if you don't have, you know, that planning and that pre-planning documents, um, you know, it's also key decisions like, you know, who is your um, your medical agent in charge and who makes decisions when you can't make decisions on yourself and do you want to be resuscitated? And, you know, there's a lot of uh, medical decisions that you should make prior to, you know, and not having these car park conversations where it's like, a f- you know, a flustered family is in the car park emotionally charged and grief-ridden trying to make a decision on uncle harry when because uncle harry hadn't done any of his paperwork it's like you know it's just do the pre-planning um and then i guess the second stage is just like the caring um for the actual the the dying and the death process like you don't have to die in hospital you know if you want to die at home you can die at home um you know, there's a lot of different options in terms of, you know, what do you want your caregiving, companionship, um, you know, funeral, ritual, ceremony, like all of these things you can um, consider. And then, um, yeah, I guess like the, the third thing is like really the supporting after the death. And um, there is a lot of great new grief and bereavement support access points, but it's still such a taboo topic that we don't actually talk about it a lot or enough. And so um, there's a huge opportunity for us as a culture to be more open to talk about 
the fundamentally only thing we're all going to do, which is die, let's, you know, let's not avoid it. Let's just have these tough human conversations. There are so many people that are navigating extreme grief with extreme life admin next level. Like there is, there is nothing more selfish that you can do than die and not have your planning in order because honestly you are setting your loved ones up for years and years and years of administrational hell. Like it is, it is just a nightmare to have to deal with that um, admin, especially if you're in the depths of grief. Like it's, and, you know, if we just stopped avoiding these conversations and, you know, there's a very clear generation, co-generational opportunity here of like, okay, you know, if my generation's more open to talking about the harder things, then maybe I should help my parents or my grandparents, you know, lead them to more openness around these types of topics. But to be honest, Ingrid, and you can quote me on this, like 10 years ago, the sex industry was so taboo, no one was talking it. And now everyone's a sexologist. Well, I can tell you now that like death tech is booming. And in the next 10 years, everyone is going to be working in the you know there's going to be a lot of people working in the death industry and it won't be as taboo as what it is now which is yeah very good thing and then one last question for you with with your experiences with death with connection with everything that you've done it's a big question i guess but what does what does leading and living a rich and meaningful life look like for you? That to me looks like continuing to approach everything with humility and honesty and humanness and, you know, embracing that full human experience. Um, It also means celebrating those small things and, you know, those small things could be, a smile in the street, a good morning, um, you know, uh, those small moments of human connection that we sometimes forget. Um, And the last thing I'll say on that is, you know, I have had so many kind of ego-shedding moments in my professional life and, you know, I know that my work and life is a beautiful blend and the way that I approach it now is like a portfolio of service. And I think that, you know, there is win-win opportunities that exist in my in my work and my personal life every day. Um, and so there's that mutual exchange and that mutual benefit that I'll constantly be seeking um, whether it's across the generations, whether it's across stories, um, you know, there's so many kind of nodes to the places that I work across. Um, but yeah, tying it back to how we started, um, a rich and meaningful life means being human and not being afraid of that full spectrum of what it means to be human.